0: The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life.
1: And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour, So oh, may my life be to all those who share this road.
0: Welcome back to the Misreading Scripture series on the Thin Places podcast. We're about halfway through our study of the book Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien. Our goal is to recognize the cultural blinders we all wear in order to encounter God's revelation in Scripture in a new and more authentic way. Today, we're talking about honor and shame. For most of history, and still in most of the world, our behavior is judged by our larger community's standards. But in our Western context, we are more usually motivated by our feelings and by our personal choice. What would it look like if we were to imagine our behavior had more to do with our reputation than with our conscience? As always, you can find an image of our notes for this discussion in the link in the description, as well as a link to purchase your own copy of this fantastic book. And now, here's Misreading Scripture Part 5, Honor and Shame. So we're continuing with our, with our study of the book. We've covered mores and ethnicity and language, which are on the, the iceberg of, of worldview. They're sort of sitting there above the surface, and now we're beginning our dive below the surface. We're trying to understand how worldview works in a, a deeper way, right? We're, we're starting to ask the question, what things do we assume on a daily basis are just the way it is? Just the way that things are all, always and what, what part of those things are not universal to the human experience. What parts of the assumptions that we're making are things that happen because of the way that we as Western Christians look at the world around us and, and through that same lens look at the Bible. Okay, So last week we talked about what?
1: Yes, princesses and dragons. That was was the other room. The trip to Mordor was in the other room.
0: Now, we talk about individualism versus collectivism. And what does that mean? I versus we. Yes, exactly. It's the I versus the we question. Because... Thing. We in in the West typically think of ourselves. We you know we, we have idioms that are developed so that we can you know describe ourselves as being you know our, our own little castle, our own little universe. It's this like deeply solipsistic worldview that we have in in the West. At its at its core, it's all about me. It's 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 that I'm I'm the the end goal, the end result of everything that has been and everything that will be. It's all about me, really. That's not true in, in most cultures. It's a, it's a product of, of the world that we live in, and especially it's a product of the Industrial Revolution. Um, it, it, the, the Industrial Revolution allowed us to maintain our existence in a way that kept us separate, and by separate I mean independent from the people who are around us. And it's that word independent that is, that, that is so important for understanding the difference between, between uh, a collective life and an individualistic life. Because we think about it, and, and when we hear those words, we're like, well, it's me by myself, or it's we together. But really, it's that question of dependency. It's, am I dependent on people around me, or am I not? That's really the question that's being asked. And so we can, we can say that we're dependent in terms of morality, or we can say that we're dependent in terms of economics, or in terms of social support, or whatever that looks like. But ultimately, that's what's, what sort of lays at the heart of the question is, do I depend on the people around me, or do I imagine that I exist on my own? Okay, so this week we're, we're sort of... Extending off of that, the, this this chapter is deeply connected to the chapter uh, the, the chapter before. So we've we've just finished talking about individualism and collectivism, and now we're going to contrast the world of honor and shame versus the world of right and wrong. Okay, so honor, shame, right, and wrong. Again, like I said, this is tied to our our way of of looking at individualism in the West. We view the world in terms of right and wrong. Everything around us, everything that happens uh, from, from one moment to the next is, is this right and wrong sort of a world. We know that, uh, that behavior is either right behavior or it's wrong behavior. And that
1: happens.
0: It happens because of the way that we perceive our behavior. In the West, we have this way of perceiving our behavior that that suggests that each one of us is dependent to no one other than yourself, okay? So this is why it's tied into what we talked about last week, when we talked about collectivism. We imagine that our moral choices, the moral universe that we live in, doesn't have anything to do with the people who are around us, unless it's, I did something bad to them, I have to feel bad about the thing that I did, okay? So we, we make this assumption. We we assume first that we know these things, that this is just something that is known, that this this moral law, these guiding moral principles, are just a thing that people know. Okay? And we assume that not only are they known internally, but that they are chosen internally. That we have this system of rules and guidelines that we each have accepted. Uh, in one way, shape, or form, we know those things, and we choose those things we 're responsible for the choices that we make and so what that what happens is that we divide the world that we live into in a world of of good versus bad right and that, that happens it, it, it filters all of the choices that we make. we just we dichotomize the world, we divide everything in half between good things and bad things and good guys and bad guys like, that 's just the universe. Uh, the the universe that we live in, and so we we have this assumption that whenever we do good behavior, that that good behavior is something that's internally motivated. We do good things because we want to do good things. Obviously, you would want to do good things, right? Does anybody want to do bad things? Jeremiah no. sure, is the only honest. Well, there we go. have got some more hands. I would like to do bad things, but you choose not to. Why?
1: Morally. Because we've been taught a moral compass.
0: A moral compass. Uh-huh. And what happens if we do bad things? We get punished. We get caught. Right? Who does the punishing?
1: Depends.
0: It depends. Mm-hmm. On like what? Bad thing that I do. With bad thing <laughs> that I are, do. Our wives. <laughs> Somebody in authority. What happens if nobody in authority knows that you did something bad? Do you still get punished?
1: No,
2: no
0: that yeah. If you have a conscience, if you have a conscience, yeah. Yeah. this is another. But but this issue of the conscience is something that we only see in Western culture. Ellie Rose, well, push me off that. Ellie Rose, there isn't
3: much to talk about.
1: It Ellie Rose,
0: <laughs> uh, okay, so yes, there's this assumption in Western culture that some form of guilt exists, that we have this conscience, and that this conscience, this these internally known, internally chosen compass that directs us toward right behavior and wrong behavior is going to keep us on course. And the the, the way that it does that is by using guilt. We feel guilty if we've done something wrong. We feel proud if we've done something right. Now, culturally, I would say that we are in many ways moving away from that sort of uh, polarizing, dichotomized way of looking at the world. We're not moving toward an honor-shame way of looking at this. Okay. So we're not, we're not moving toward the way that the rest of the world looks at it. We're, we're moving into an anarchic sort of a viewpoint of this, which is you should do whatever you want whenever you want and never feel bad about it because you've got the thing that you want. Right? It's that, that ultimately the moral compass is, is not about choosing right and wrong. It's about choosing desire. So it's whatever I desire is the thing that I should have. That there's that there's no other uh, there's no other authority. So the, the idea is, is still it still sits in this universe of right and wrong. It's just that the authority has shifted away from this idea that the, that the that the moral compass is something that that happens externally. Now the moral compass is just this thing that I invent and can change anytime that I feel like it. Okay. So what what happens in this world is that when we talk about people who are doing wrong things. What you've what you've done wrong is that you have violated your conscience. Okay? Violating your conscience is what we're talking about. When 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 we in the in the right, wrong universe talk about doing something wrong, we're like, well, you knew that you shouldn't have done it, but you did it anyway. Right? Ultimately, when we say that you made a wrong choice, that's what we're saying. You knew better, but you chose that. And usually what that means is, you are then a bad person. Like, we, put, we, we, we break it down into that grouping. We're like, we're, we're so simplistic about the way that we talk. We're like, you chose wrong. You are bad. Like, that's just the way that we communicate with each other constantly, on a regular basis. Okay? Now, over, over on the other side, and by the other side, I mean the entire rest of the world, uh, that doesn't come out of the Industrial Revolution in, in Europe, the entire rest of the world has this very different way of looking at this. And, and it's going to sound weird for us, okay? So I just want you to, you know, hold on a second. It'll, it'll make sense, I promise. All right? In an honor-shame world, choices are made based on the society's opinions and expectations. Everything that is done, right or wrong, falls under the category of what does the group expect from me? Okay? It's the community, and it's not the individual, that determines where there's shame. And so in that kind of a context, we, we aren't even going to talk about whether somebody who sins is going to feel guilty about having sinned. Okay? They're only going to feel guilty if they have brought shame on themselves, or if they have brought shame on the group as a whole. All right? in, in this world, honor is a resource. Okay? I want you to think about it in those terms. In this world, honor is a resource, and it's limited. There's not enough honor to go around. All right. And so the amount of honor that you as, as a family have, you as a tribe have, you as a people have, is a finite amount. And it can be taken away. And when it's taken away, you become poorer. All right? we don't conceive of that in, in our world like we just like that as soon as you say that you're like what So in an honor shamed world the right and wrong behavior is determined by the society and it's the society that is responsible For enforcing that behavior. All right? Doing wrong in in the other system is, is all about your feelings. But in an honor shame world. You do wrong by violating the group's expectation of your behavior. Now, those are really big concepts, okay? Some of us that have, you know, have have sort of read a little bit about honor-shame cultures and encountered that maybe by studying... Uh, stuff you know, especially stuff, newer stuff that's been written on on the uh, on, on the New Testament um, and the Old Testament as well, but especially on the New Testament. Like we've we've encountered this idea of an honor shame culture, but we're not all that familiar with it. We're not. We, we just don't we don't conceive of how somebody at St. Aidan's Church could say, well, I you know I I, I don't. The, the thing that the thing that tells me whether an action is right or wrong is whether or not it violates or affirms the group's expectations.
1: You see how strange
0: that would sound? You're like, I, you know, I, I do these things because that's what we do. But I'm not interested in the question of whether it's right or wrong. That's the difference, okay? A person in an honor-shame culture is not asking the question, is my behavior right or wrong? They're asking the question, is this something that maintains honor or is this something that brings shame? You kind of grasp what I'm saying? I want to make sure we're all on the same page because we can't really move forward. One of the interesting examples of this is, is that in the West, typically what we do to, to deal with the right and wrong and to deal with the, the sort of anarchicness of, of, uh, of the right and wrong universe, like ultimately, if, if we're individualistic about it, we each have our own moral compass. What do we do when the moral compasses disagree? disagree? Okay? In the West, we say, ha-ha, we have a solution for that. Laws. We can get enough people together and if enough people decide that their moral compasses all point in the same direction then they can write down the direction those moral compasses point in and that becomes a law. Okay? The idea of doing something that is legal or illegal doesn't carry the same sort of connotation in an honor or a, or a shame culture. Okay? So an example of this that, that is closer to home for us all right, is that we, as a parish, spent about a year and a half going through a book study together, right? Everybody remembers this? This was three years ago. We, 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 we walked through thin places, and then we walked through thin places again, and we met, and we talked, and we met, and we talked, and we prayed, and we worked, and we did all of those things so that we could take the principles that they were, that they were laying out, these, these, these lived experiences that were being communicated by the author's, uh, and by the other folks that we come into contact with, and we sort of started living these things out. But for us, we live in the West, and it's not really enough for us to just sort of say, "Well, here's a book. This is what we do," right? So, what's what was our response? I
2: made a charter. Charter. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, we made a charter. We we took we took the we we took the principles, and then we codified them. We wrote them all down so that. We could, so, so it, it tells us when we're violating the group's expectations, but we have it in black and white. We, we've, we've shifted the, we've shifted the, the burden of, of the group. From the group to the individual. Now, each one of you is individually responsible for upholding or not upholding your end of the group. Whereas, when when that sits here, it's the whole group together that carries the burden
3: of the individual. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes? Yeah. I thought of a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by a guy named John Ronson. Um... And it's about, it's a series of kind of interviews and stories about people who did, publicly did something, and then were kind of attacked, mostly via social media, and very publicly shamed, and their names put out there, mm -hmm. and like... If I remember correctly, it was mostly about that
2: girl that did the tweet about going to Africa. I like, yeah. Oh, I don't have to worry about getting AIDS
3: because I'm... Yeah, there's a girl who like <laughs> tweeted before she took off and by the time she had landed in Africa, she had lost her job um, yeah. And like her name was out there, pictures yeah. of her were out there, and it was all like kind of a really m- a mob enta- mentality because the group, being yeah. mostly Twitter, Society, had yeah. decided um, that the way she had acted was outside of the acceptable norms, Interesting. Um, and had publicly shamed her for that. Yeah. And so the book is kind of you know about so how these people reacted. She, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, something about like I'm going to Africa, hope I don't get Africa. AIDS
2: and I, I don't have to worry about that. Like, wow. and, and so like Yeah, all the people yeah. like it it, it says they're kind yeah. of inappropriate,
3: but, sarcastic, but it had been kind of blown up out of proportion and yeah. it just kind of it stepped outside of it seen
4: by just the right person and yeah. yeah. led yeah. a mob against her, attacked yeah. Yeah. her company to the point where and being like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, we're going to fire her." Yeah.
3: yeah. And so, like, no. that kind of, yeah, violating the group expectations and mm-hmm. then the group kind of turning on you. Something, you know. And then forgotten about, yeah. you know, on. The, the internet is maybe more honor shame oh, based yeah. than Right. <laughs> because, oh, right. Uh, you know, and it happens with celebrities as well, When a celebrity acts human, you know, outside of the expectations. The, the public reacts very strongly and usually the way to kind of fix it isn't to do a right thing it's to apologize or to try and you know get back that honor or status. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the that I, uh, I'm not sure if this is applicable, but um, as a parent taking your child out with one of those little backpacks, there's nothing you know intrinsically wrong about that. But you will definitely invite the scorn of the group, <laughs> <laughs> and that scorn means more than is more than just this is a thing we don't want you to do. Implied within that scorn is you are a lazy parent. Mm-hmm. You are, a, car you are a person. I'm sorry. but you, you are a person who is treating your child like an animal. Mm-hmm. You are a person who who is an inattentive parent mm-hmm. because you're obviously using this to cover up for your inability to watch your child. So all of those things, they're not, you know, they're not externalized or codified, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you we've, we've managed to internalize the glares from from experiences we've had, mm-hmm. and so you know that you will be sanctioned for this behavior.
0: Here's the way that they that the, the authors of the book summarize this. Let's say, in an innocence-guilt culture, which includes most Western societies, the laws of society, the rules of the church, local mores, the codes of the home are all internalized in the person. The goal is that when a person breaks one of these, his or her conscience will be pricked. In fact, it's hoped the conscience will discourage the person from breaking the rule in the first place. So the battle is fought on the inside. In an honor-shame society, such as that of the Bible and much of the non-Western world today, The driving force is not to bring shame upon yourself, your family, your church, your village, your tribe, even your faith. The determining force is the expectations of your significant others, primarily your family. Their expectations don't override morals or right and wrong. They actually are the ethical standards. In these cultures, you are shamed when you disappoint those whose expectations matter. You did wrong not by breaking a law or having inner guilt, but by failing to meet the expectations of your community. For our discussion here, the point is to notice that the verdict comes not from the inner conscience of the perpetrator, but from the external response of his or her group. One's actions are good or bad, depending upon how the community interprets them. Okay? I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, because the, the, the next question is really important, all right? The question is, why does that matter when we sit down to read the Bible? Why does that matter when we sit down to read the Bible? Like, let's assume that we now understand, you know, how, how right-wrong cultures and honor shame cultures work, and we're like, yeah, I understand all of that. Why does that matter to the way that we, as a community at St. Aiden, why does that matter to the way that we read the Bible? Well,
2: it means we don't, we don't do the, we're going to start with the Ten Commandments to find out how to live. Mm-hmm. Because the Ten Commandments can actually be time-limited. Mm-hmm. Because now, instead of going from the one perfect moral law that's been set out since time immemorial, we now have different cultures that can have different moral standards mm-hmm. and that's and, and that means that when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you we don't need to go through complicated gymnastics, we can instead say these are new expectations that we abide by or mm-hmm. then we can
0: but what Jesus is setting up is a new expectation that's particular to this group. And we talked about that a little bit last week, that, that one of the unique things that happens in Christianity is, the, is the, the restructuring of what the family looks like, right? That the family no longer looks like uh, a nuclear family, but it also doesn't necessarily look like the clan or the tribe anymore. What the family looks like is the local parish. It's the people of God that are gathered together in in a place in, in at once, and so it changes that, like it it, it 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 turns all of that on its head. One of the other things that the authors point out that I think is 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 worth mentioning or worth noting is that the the Western introspective conscience is alien to a biblical worldview. Okay the Bible does not contain people sitting around thinking about their feelings Mm -hmm. it just doesn't but here's the thing we imagine that it does, right, because we in, in the culture that we live in are trained to ask the question, was this behavior right or was this behavior wrong and then to think about it Right to sit down and think. What, what, let me think about my behavior. Let me think about that. And does that you know does does that work or does that not work? And that kind of introspection is foreign to the world of the Bible. The world of, of the people who actually lived and 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 in, in, in the context of Scripture, this this way of looking at it is completely foreign to them.
1: I'm a little
4: confused.
0: Maybe mm-hmm. you
1: could
4: flesh that out a little, because I see the Bible. Many many times dealing with emotions, mm-hmm. especially in especially in the Old Testament. Right.
0: Not, I'm I'm not speaking specifically of emotions, but how people feel about their behavior. Got it. Yeah, because because we're still we're still dealing with the like the honor shame level. Got so it. it's not yeah not not whether or not yeah not whether or not there's emotions, but mm-hmm. but specifically like people people you know how how did how did that behavior you know how did that affect you how did that make you feel that that sort of introspection. The moral introspection.
1: <coughs> David. When he was approached by
4: mm-hmm. Nathan, or mm-hmm.
0: but in David. that case, David doesn't experience guilt. Because David does all uh, uh, this, th- thinking about that that text, like the you know the the bulk of the chapter sort of deals with deals with that story mm-hmm. about about David's behavior toward Bathsheba and then also toward Uriah, and ultimately what what happens in that story is that David does everything that he's allowed to do. There's there's never a point where David does something wrong,
1: mm-hmm.
0: morally speaking, within the context of his culture. He behaves exactly the way that every that that every king in every country, in in the entirety of the Mediterranean, ancient Near East behaved. Um, The difference is that he worships a god, and the god that he worships has specific ethical things that he's set up. But God doesn't convict David by saying, your conscience should feel this way. He sends in somebody to speak those words to David. So there's always, in, in Scripture, there's an exterior force that brings shame. Right? And it goes back to that. It's, it, it's not this person <laughs> behaved this way and felt badly. It's this person behaved in in a way that, that put them at odds with God. And so God sent someone to correct their behavior. Does that make sense? What do we do with Job then? I know it's
4: uh, horrible, but
2: He sits around with three of his friends and talks about what he didn't do. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, no, you did something. He's like, no, I didn't. Right. And still continues to claim innocence. So, I mean, is he thinking about his feelings or is he just thinking about, like, I didn't break the law?
0: Yeah, ultimately what he's saying is that I've done nothing to bring shame on me. Yeah. Um, people but,
3: coming from the outside to but, act as they thought prophetically and tell right, him what they, he had done. Yeah, they believed that they were. They were prophetic voices. <laughs> exactly. And yeah.
0: he rebukes them. But the thing that he says over and over and over again is, "I wish that there was a counselor. I wish that there was an intermediary to come and sit between me and between God, so that so that I could bring my complaint to him." Like he's constantly saying, "I wish that I was in a community where." A community that worked because the community that I'm in right now doesn't work. It's God it's God. tragically broken. There's no one. There, there's no one who's who's a go between, right?
4: It's something that um, I, I, it was I was listening to a debate with um, Ravi Zacharias, and he points and some and somebody tried to use Job as an example mm-hmm. of here's God acting out of character. Mm-hmm. Robbie's point was. If we look at what Job asks for throughout, it's an audience before God. Mm-hmm. And he gets that audience before God. Right. He doesn't get an answer for why all these bad His, his question <laughs> isn't just, why why are all these bad things happening to me? It's a, uh, I need to have an audience with the person who is doing something bad. Something right. Something is wrong here, and I need to rectify mm-hmm. and know...
0: Why it
1: isn't happening? Because I have done nothing
0: wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, in the in in the biblical context, there there are three ways that that God historically in in the Old Testament confronts people with their sin. And so, he sends a prophet, or a judge, or he sends a priest, or he sends a king and the imagery there is really important because of Job because the thing that Job is constantly asking for is, is an audience he's asking for a go-between he's asking for an intercessor and so what, what is, is unique in the biblical world is that we say that the prophet the priest, the king, the intercessor is all one person that, that, it's, that, that, it's, that it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who, who remains as a member of each of the earthly bodies that are gathered together does that make sense? Like what Christians are saying within the context of honor shame or right and wrong is fun it is actually fundamentally different from both. Like the the, the and and that's the whole point. Like, again, the the point is not for us to say the the right wrong culture is bad and the the honor shame culture is good. It's not to say that. It's to say that the world of, the, of, of Scripture is fundamentally different from ours. And when we bring our own assumptions to the text, we change what the text means. We miss important passages all throughout Scripture because we've, we've made specific uh, assumptions about that. So, for instance, like, obviously when we're talking about honor, shame, and right and wrong, what, what we're talking about is the way that cultures deal with sin, okay? So one of the, one of the things that we, that, that we need to pay attention to here, right, these, these three lessons that we've got, is that we each have our own assumptions about what is and is not sinful behavior. And here's why that matters. Because we each have our own assumptions about sin and about the way that sin is convicted, those assumptions lead us to missing important parts of the biblical story we miss them entirely because we have our own assumptions about the way about the way that sin works and about the way that repentance works and about the way that God convicts people of their sin another point that's worth pointing out is that God's justice transcends culture. Okay? Again, going back to the David and Bathsheba story, everything in that story that David did was okay, culturally speaking. And yet, God sends a prophet to confront him. And even before the prophet gets there, God sends a plague to strike his son. Right? like That's the way that God deals with that. That, that. that God's justice isn't something that's bound by either our ideas of right and wrong or our cultural ideas about honor and change. Right? Neither of these concepts compasses or bounds God's justice. God's justice transcends all of those things, and it works through them, and it works in spite of them. Okay? And so what that means is that while it transcends... God also works through culture. Okay? We still meet the God of Scripture in the midst of a right-wrong culture or an honor-shame culture. We don't meet a different kind of God. We don't meet a different God of the Bible. Okay? It's the same God who we're meeting in those contexts because he transcends those cultures, but also he works through those cultures to meet us where we are. So the question is, so what? Like, great. So the Bible is honor-shame. We, we live in a right-wrong world. So what? Why does it matter? Like, Why is it important for us to recognize those distinctions, those differences between our culture and the culture of Scripture? Why is that important? One reason is because we risk missing important passages there are important things that are, that are laced all throughout scripture and what happens is we read a story that morally makes us uncomfortable like Job and so we just ignore it right? or the example that they use in the book is the, uh, is the story at the end of Judges uh, where the, the Levite's concubine is chopped up into pieces and mailed to everybody Right? We're like, this is a really terrible story. I don't want to read it. I don't understand it. And so we just skip it. And so we miss out on what it is that's being communicated, the important truths about us and about our, our relationships with each other and about God's justice and the way that God's justice is being revealed in Scripture. And seeing it revealed in Scripture, we can then see it being revealed in our own lives and in our own experiences. Okay the other problem that we run into is that we can trick ourselves into imagining that our sin is private. This is a particular danger for us in the right wrong world because we imagine that when we sin it, we're like well I got to you know go you know do confession on Sunday morning before before service and you know that's cool we're good if like, we imagine that our sin is private and there's something there's something in, in, in the book when, when they're talking specifically uh, about 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, when, when, they're, when they're discussing the, the Lord's table, right, that these, the, the people, you know, the, the slaves and, and the day laborers didn't get off work until the evening time, and the rich people were showing up for dinner, and they were having their own parties, and so when everybody else got off of work and showed up for the church service, everybody was drunk and all the food was gone, and there was nothing left for anybody else. But we make our own assumption reading that passage, right? This is, so Paul says, this is why some of you are sick, and even a few of you have fallen asleep. And we have this assumption in our heads when we hear that, that what Paul is talking about is that you guys have sinned, and so you have been punished by God for your own private individual sins. And, you know, maybe we don't believe this about taking, taking communion nowadays, but, you know, God was serious about it once upon a time. And... Um, You know, and now some of you guys are sick, or whatever. Like, we just have that assumption when we read the passage. But it doesn't say that at all. Paul doesn't say who was sick. It's entirely possible that it's the poor people who were sick. It's the poor people who weren't allowed to receive communion, because everybody had gobbled it up before they got there. There wasn't a way for them to be healed, and so they remained sick. But until I, until I read this passage again, that had never occurred to me, reading that passage. The basic assumption was always, and for most Western Christians, has always been, well, what do you think about that? Do you think God really smites you if you, you, know, if, if you receive the, the sacrament unworthily? Like, well, you, you know, there, there's, there's a debate theologically that just goes on all the time. But it's possible that that's not what Paul was saying at all, right? That I've brought my own assumptions along with me, my own assumptions about what's happening in this particular passage. And that what's really going on is something much larger, that Paul is actually saying something about our communion together that's way more important, that's way, that, that penetrates way deeper, that changes the way that I understand our relationship with each other as a body. Does that make sense? So, we brought this up last week and it's worth it, it's worth sort of revisiting as a, a as a sort of case study, okay? So, we talked about last week the the Rwandan genocide. Um that is, is the microphone. That is exactly right. We're recording all of our all of our talking cuz people are going to listen to it someday. Probably not, yeah. I will so so the Rwandan genocide has its roots in the 1800s okay when when european uh, European settlers, European invaders ended up in in Africa, what they immediately began doing was fighting with each other right they would they would get you know particular tribes on on their side, and other people would sort of like the French and Indian war they would you know grab grab different factions of of locals, and they would you know have proxy wars with each other and they would... So eventually, the way that they decided to have peace was that they would just divide up chunks of Africa because it was theirs, obviously. Um, They could just, you know, draw lines wherever they felt like it and divide it up however they wanted to. And the best way to administer, uh, you know, uh, the rule of law, because, of course, they're coming at this from a Western perspective, is to create sort of a caste system. And the way that that worked itself out in places like Rwanda... Uh, and and other uh, uh, other countries in the area was that the they, they took they they had heard about different tribes and so they said well these are the two biggest tribes in the area so we're going to decide which tribe is which tribe and so they handed out national IDs and you had to have your your tribe stamped on on your national ID on your, your you know your papers uh, this was originally the Germans and then later it was the uh, later it was the Belgians. So if you were an African living in Rwanda and the areas around Rwanda, and you looked vaguely Caucasian, right? If you had sort of semi-Caucasian features, then you were called a Tutsi. And if you looked African, which means that, you know, you had basically normal black features, then you were considered to be a Hutu. And they and, and while these were tribes, people were were moved by the government out of their tribes into new tribes so that they could create this caste system. And then in this caste system you have you have an underclass of Hutu's who can get, you know, day laborer jobs and they can work in the fields. And then you have government positions that are given to these other people. Well then eventually all of that sort of falls apart and, and colonialism comes to an end uh, and you have the introduction of new political ideology. Um, you, you have you have a conflict between uh, you know, between labor ideologies um, and 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 uh, you know other other Western ideologies, and what happens is is that there was there there was a huge war. It, it was a huge war that was invented by us, that was that that was funded uh, and spurred on by Western powers, uh, industrialized powers, um, and mil, uh, more than a million people died. Um, the the Hutus rose up and started killing Tutsis wherever they could find them. Eventually, order was restored. But what do you do in a country where you have hundreds of thousands of people who are all guilty of, of murder in, in one way, shape, or form? What do you do with that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's the only way that they could handle it because they don't, you, can't, you can't put a third of the population of your country in jail. America's trying real hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's as political as I'm going to get tonight. But you can't, you the can't, country can't function if it throws a third of its population into prison. And so the way that they, the, the way that they get around that is by not passing a bunch of laws. Because for us, we, we, we think, oh, well, this person is guilty of murder. They go to jail. I'm like, well, what do you do if it's everybody on your block? You're like, then my block is going to be quiet. <laughs> I'm going to knock down the fence and expand my garden. That's what's going to happen, right? Because it's a law and that was wrong, right? But what do you do in in a culture where where the the value is honor shame? What how do you how do you restore honor within a context like that? The way that they do it is by after the the the, the many of the people have have served time in prison. They're brought back out and they're offered the opportunity to begin telling the truth and becoming reconciled. They're offered the opportunity to restore what was taken. And this was headed up by Anglicans, right? It was, it was the Anglican Church of Rwanda that, that headed this up, that proposed this, that headed this up because the kingdom functions differently. So it's not really about whether or not the, the Rwandan world was honor-shame or the Rwandan world was right and wrong. These people obviously were guilty of committing crimes, right? It's, the things that they did were objectively wrong. Now, they would, they would make the argument, and lots of people involved in genocide have made the argument that I was just following orders. Sometimes it's I was following the orders of family, right? But, but ultimately what they're appealing to is it's not wrong because my culture, my society, my group, my tribe, my clan said that it was okay. And if, as long as they said that it was okay, it can't be wrong. They determined right and wrong. You don't. Scripture doesn't function that way. The biblical worldview doesn't function that way. In the kingdom, there is right and wrong. And in the kingdom, we are interested in seeing wrong undone and relationships restored. Okay? It's a fundamentally different way of thinking about our life together. But the trouble is that we miss out on that, especially in the West. Like, I've had conversations with people about what happened in Rwanda, and their response literally is they should have just killed them all and started over again. Like, that was the way that they should have handled that. And like, well, you're guilty of murder, then we execute you. Let's just start over again. You can do without. You can do without. right like we have this we have this mentality that that law and order is is the thing that's going to is going to fix all of our problems that if we if we set up this this world in which there are fixed laws where everything is black and white that that's going to make all of our problems go away but it's not okay we don't find that when we read the stories of the priests and the prophets and the kings we don't find that when we read the story of the gospel we don't find that when we read uh from paul or from peter from the epistle to the to to the hebrews we don't find that in in a biblical worldview making more rules doesn't make the problem go away what makes the problem go away is when human beings through other human beings encounter the living god that's the thing that changes everything And so it is about right and wrong, and it is about honor and shame, but it transcends both of those things. All of those things are in play there, but it transcends those. It's so much larger than those things. But we as Westerners can get trapped in that mentality. We, can, we, we, we get this idea that the, that there's one particular way of reading this passage and that this is the way that it's going to be, that this is the only way that it makes sense. This is the only way that we can understand what Paul is talking about in Galatians is if we understand right and wrong and, you know, there's, there's a law and you have to get rid of the law. Done! That's not it. That's not what Paul is talking about in Galatians at all. That's not, the, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he sits down on the Temple Mount surrounded by the crowds and the Pharisees. That's not what happens... Uh, when when Job is complaining com- complaining to and against God, it's not about it's not what it's about at all. What's what's happening is that Scripture envisions a new kind of humanity. It envisions a new kind of creation. It envisions a new kind of world. And if we as Western American white Christians allow ourselves to diminish the 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 scope of the biblical vision, we're always going to fall short. We're always going to miss out on the incredible things that God is doing right now in his creation. Does that make sense? That's why this is important. It's important because we miss out on that. So what's the practical thing, right? I forgot last week to give you guys the practical thing. I, I gave it to you. I just didn't spell out what the, what the practical sort of end, end game was. So last week the practical one was when you're reading scripture, say, say we instead of I. Okay, that like that was we said that, but I didn't I didn't make that you know I didn't put it up there in, in block letters. So the solution is while we're reading scripture, I want us to ask this this this, this question: Is what the author's talking about about conscience or is it about reputation? You'll be fascinated when you start asking this question. Because there's been lots of times that you have been reading, especially psalms. You've been reading psalms and you're like, wow, I feel really bad about my behavior. Psalms have really, you know, really struck a chord with me. And when you go back and you ask this question, is this about conscience, or is this about reputation? Is this God saying something about reputation, about what it means to live as one of God's people, or is this about me? So do we have any questions or thoughts or concerns as we draw to a close? Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, Check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you.